Welcome to episode 25. Today we'll be focusing on the Pacific Theater and the Second World War. And this is the second week in a row that we've done a World War II episode. And really, this is a pretty much a broad ranging cover of the war in the Pacific in 1944 and 1945. And to give background, obviously, the US involvement in the Second World War really starts with. Pearl Harbor. That's the true entry into the war, December 7, 1941. But obviously, the United States had already sort of been getting involved in the conflict with the Lend Lease Act. They're already, the US Navy was already protecting convoys going back and forth even before we formally declared war. So, in some sense, we are already at war before we officially declared war. But, anyways, the Pacific Theater is one of the interesting aspects of the Second World War because it was fought very viciously and fought. In very difficult circumstances on tiny islands of the Pacific and in different seas, we saw the aircraft carrier become the most important ship in, in really the world. We saw the innovation of amphibious landings. We saw the US Marines really sort of define sort of their modern ethos and all of that. So, when focusing on the war in 1944 and 1945, the war had already been raging for almost two years up to that point. And the United States and its allies had already sort of been on the, it was kind of preparing for the beginning of the end of the Second World War. And it's again interesting to look at, you know, 1944. US production doesn't peak until 1944, and US true involvement and ground involvement doesn't really get involved until 1944. If you think about D Day happening in June of 1944, and yes, US soldiers had been fighting in North Africa and Sicily and Italy before that, but the first ground action the United States actually saw was in the Pacific at Guadalcanal, which is another episode I definitely want to cover, or another topic I definitely want to dedicate a whole episode to. So, again, this is one of those conflicts that there's so much to cover. So, today it's kind of just a broader interview and a broader overlook. I'm hoping to do you know, more specific episodes, but I thought it would be good to sort of try and look at it from a grand strategy perspective and try and look at it in sort of a broad overview. So, I hope you enjoyed the interview. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Mark Galicio. He is a chairperson professor at the Department of History at Villanova University. He was also a Fulbright visiting lecturer in Japan from 1998 to 1999 and from 2004 to 2005. Some of his work includes The Unpredictability of the Past, Memories of the Asia Pacific War, and U.S. East Asian Relations, The Scramble for Asia, U.S. Military Power in the Aftermath of the Pacific War, and Implaceable Foes, The War in the Pacific from 1944 to 1945, which was the winner of the Bancroft Prize in America. American history and diplomacy in 2018. So, welcome on. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Riley. It's Galicchio.、Um, oh, Galicchio. That's okay. My mistake. <laughs> That's right. I'm used to that. So, well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Happy to talk about a subject that interests me. And to begin with some broader questions, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the later years of the Pacific War? Well, I think the sort of middle of the 20th century is my favorite time period, focusing on US relations with East Asia. And so that takes in the Pacific War, of course, and the Korean War, and, but the pre war period as well. So I'd say that's probably my favorite area to do research in. Although, I mean, I have worked in the sort of Cold 
war period and the like. Um, I'm particularly interested in American relations with East Asia. I think just because it's difficult to sort of apply a single kind of overarching theory to it to explain what took place there between Americans and Japanese and Chinese and Vietnamese. And so I like that. And it seems to be a, I think of it as a kind of crucial moment in world history as well that had an awful lot of influence on the world we're living in today. So those are all the reasons. And there are a lot of interesting personalities uh, who inhabited that time period. So that's why I'm interested in that period. And how did I get interested in the later part of World War II? Well, it has all those elements and it's kind of all concentrated into a year and a half. It's a period of which, um, you know, the American campaigns were gaining momentum and yet there were an awful lot of decisions that still had to be made, a great deal of uncertainty about how the war was going to end. And I mean, I like just looking into all those questions and trying to understand what that looked at like to the people having to make decisions and experiencing that. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history? Well, dealing with the U.S. and Asia, the biggest one is the language. And I've fumbled around with Japanese sort of on and off for a long time, which is why I focus on the U.S. and the most. That would be number one. And so anybody, I kind of backed into this period, and I would encourage anybody who is interested in U.S. relations with any other country, U.S. foreign relations, begin by learning a language as soon as possible. And that was just sort of, uh, I mean, you know, it's a case of do as I say, not as I do. So that's the biggest challenge. Honestly, I guess travel, getting to where the source materials are, is the biggest challenge. Because once you're there, I mean, historians just can spend forever in the archives. It is just the most, I think, interesting aspect of the job. You never know what you're going to find in that next file or that next file box. And it may be something that a hundred other people, historians, have looked at, but because you're coming at it with a different question, you'll see something they didn't. And so it's the only thing where I can spend an entire day without really much of a break at all doing that because you just keep sort of anticipating you're going to find something. So that's not the challenging part. That's what kind of keeps you sort of coming back to the archives. And to get into questions about the later years of the Pacific War, which we'll be talking about today, to begin, can you briefly explain what had been going on in the Pacific Theater in 1942 and 1943? Sure. During that period of time, really, the Americans were initially back on their heels. The Japanese had expanded into Southeast Asia. They were already in control of the coastal areas of China, and they had pushed pretty far into the central and southern Pacific. And and so the Americans were really trying to blunt the Japanese offensive and then begin to push back that offensive with the means at their disposal. The Americans, you know, had limited means at that point, but the idea was to make sure that the Japanese didn't become too entrenched, which would make it a lot harder for them to, the Americans, to pry them out of those uh, crucial positions. So they 
one of the number one tasks was to maintain the uh, supply line of communications to Australia. And so you have the Battle of the Coral Sea and, and then to kind of do something to give the Japanese Navy a bloody nose. And that's what the Battle of Midway is, is about. And then to try and at least, I mean, Guadalcanal, the Solomon Islands campaign, then kind of builds on the Coral Sea. And so a lot of it was a kind of limited offensive kind of turning away the Japanese offensive and then starting to slowly kind of establish a position from where they the Americans could move forward toward Japan. So that was what was taking place at that period. And what was the U.S. strategy at the beginning of 1944? Well, it was a kind of divided attack uh, through the Central Pacific that would be controlled by the Navy. And then up from Australia through New Guinea, which would be led by MacArthur onto the Philippines, at least that was his expectation all along. And so you had a combination of the what's referred to as island hopping in the Central Pacific, and then MacArthur kind of leapfrogging along the northern coast of New Guinea, almost treating Japanese positions on in New Guinea as if they were these kind of island fortresses that you use American amphibious support to leap over and beyond in the same way the Navy was bypassing certain islands in the Pacific with the idea of targeting others that would give them a base from which to launch their next attacks. So that's what was taking place. Now, you know, this kind of divided command between the Navy and the Army was hardly an ideal command structure. And under the best of circumstances, that would have been a problem. And this really wasn't the best of circumstances because you had Douglas MacArthur as one of the commanders. And his attitude was always that wherever Douglas MacArthur was the most important place on earth. And he needed to have unlimited access to resources and the like. Admiral Nimitz, who led the campaign across the Pacific, uh, was able to deal with MacArthur fairly successfully diplomatically until the spring of 1945, where MacArthur kind of began questioning Nimitz's handling of things, particularly in Okinawa. And that got back to Nimitz. And at that point, the Admiral had pretty much had enough. But that's how that worked. And it worked, you know, it was the case of where domestic politics were important. MacArthur had a constituency within the Republican Party and was popular, and Roosevelt had to accommodate that, I mean, which he did. So. And did the initial offensives into the Marianas Islands and the final campaign in New Guinea find success? Yes, with some difficulty in both cases. In the Marianas, the Americans sort of learn that if they are prepared to take their time and slowly kind of tighten the noose around Japanese defenses, they could prevail while taking fewer casualties, right? The problem was that the American leadership was concerned that time was not an infinite resource for the Americans, that the American public demanded relatively quick end to the war. 
And so those measures that would guarantee fewer casualties were a problem because they would extend the war. And that's one of the things the Americans learned. But what the Americans obtain when they get the Marianas is our bases from which then they can strike the Japanese homeland with long-range bombers, the B-29s. And so that, you know, when the Marianas fall, I believe it's then that the cabinet of General Tojo also falls. There's a recognition that an important milestone has been passed. And for MacArthur moving along the coast of New Guinea, that makes it possible for him to reach the southern Philippines and press for then the retaking of the Philippines as the prelude to the invasion of Japan. So both those campaigns were pretty crucial. And did the Battle of the Philippine Sea change the balance in the naval war in the Pacific? Yeah, it really pretty much put an end to the Japanese naval threat. But the Japanese, as my colleague and co-author Waldo Heinrichs, my mentor, put it, they no longer had a traditional navy, but they still had a dangerous one because they begin to employ sort of suicidal weapons as a, a way of waging war. And so, you know, it meant that the Americans could move about more freely and that the Japanese lines of supply were more vulnerable to American attack. But it didn't mean that the Japanese couldn't endanger American surface vessels, right? And did the Battle of the Peleliu show that the United States still had a long way to go in terms of being able to successfully execute an amphibious assault? Yeah, that was an interesting question. I don't know so much what the lessons were. I think it was that part of the difficulty was that the Americans learned very quickly, but the Japanese also learned very quickly and they made changes in their defensive approach. And there were always demands on resources that put constraints on the power that the United States could bring to bear in any one situation. And so Iwo Jima is an example of that. You know, the landing forces really wanted, you know, a, a longer, heavier bombardment than the one that the Americans produced at that time. But they were preparing for Okinawa and other campaigns. And so that wasn't available. So I think that the Americans were learning very quickly in the Pacific, and they were adapting and bringing online new weapons, new support craft that made conducting war that far from established bases um, possible. It, it's difficult to imagine any other country being able to do what the United States did in the Pacific without major ports available to them once you get into the uh, Western Pacific, right? And still they were able to bring to bear a tremendous amount of power. So I, I wouldn't frame it so much. I think it's a question of what the Japanese were learning and how they were adapting. And was the decision to invade the Philippines controversial because of the competing strategies between the Army and the Navy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the Navy was willing to concede that there, I guess, there was some advantage in taking Lady. But the whole idea of going up through the Philippines, liberating the Philippines in their entirety was something that the Navy thought would squander American resources and with, I think, some, I mean, there's a lot of merit in that view. And even General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, did not anticipate the campaigns that MacArthur directed 
to liberate all of the Philippine Islands. It seemed like once he was ashore in Luzon in, in early 1945 that he was dispersing American forces. And at a time when they needed to concentrate in order to prepare for the invasion. I mean, there are thousands of islands in the Philippines, and it seemed like MacArthur was intent on liberating every last one of them. You know, he referred to these as mopping up exercises, but they were actually quite costly in terms of the amount of time that combat troops spent in the field. And the Philippines was inhospitable. Much of the Philippines, you know, was a kind of inhospitable environment. American troops in the Philippines, I think, if I remember this right, had the highest rate of sort of non-combat casualties. And that was largely because of disease. So, yeah, it was very controversial. And overall, was the invasion of the Philippines successful or did it take a lot longer than expected? Well, it was successful in that, of course, MacArthur accomplished what he set out to do. I think that's sort of an unintentional trick question because it, I think it took longer than people expected. But MacArthur just announced that it was over, even though the fighting was continuing. And, you know, he said, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all done here. At which drove his subordinate commanders nuts. But that was the problem, was that it was taking longer, tying down American forces when they would need to get out of the field, re-equip, and just sort of get ready for what was expected to be the invasion in November. Um, so, and then when did the United States Navy begin to encounter kamikaze attacks, and how did they try and combat this? I want to say there is a definite date when the first kamikazes appear. I want to say it's like off when the Americans are off the coast of Leyte. I can't remember for certain, but they really feel the brunt of it. They start to when MacArthur's um, sort of invasion flotilla is moving up to sort of northwestern Luzon. And then Okinawa is where they really, in the spring of 1945, really begin to wreak havoc on the American Navy. And the Navy was, you know, they were, this is a case of adaptation. The, they put out these sort of picket ships with radar to try and create almost a, a dome over uh, the fleet. And they had new anti-aircraft weapons that they had installed on a lot of ships. But it was a fairly porous defense. It, it didn't take much skill for a Japanese pilot to direct a plane towards a ship if he was not thinking that, you know, this was going to be a two-way mission. So despite all the efforts of the American Navy to develop new weapon systems and warning systems and the like, they took a very heavy toll off the coast of Okinawa. And to get into 1945, my first question is, what was the overall situation in the theater at the beginning of 1945? Well, MacArthur was headed for northern Luzon, and the Navy was preparing uh, for Iwo Jima. The Americans sort of at that point were could see victory in sight. I mean, victory was in sight for them, but they were also fighting. They really hadn't gotten reinforcements since early 1944 when the army began preparing for the invasion of France. And so they were fighting for nearly a year, actually probably a little bit more than a year before they began to see fresh troops appearing. So even though 
they were moving rapidly to close the ring on the Japanese and kind of enter the, the inner ring of the Japanese defenses. They were exhausting manpower. And at a moment when, of course, the war in Europe over the winter of 44-45, there had been a shortage of riflemen in European theater as a result of the Battle of the Bulge. And so there just wasn't weren't enough men to go around at that point. And what was the reasoning behind the decision to take Iwo Jima? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Iwo Jima is a very controversial decision among historians and within the military itself, because uh, they have a long memory about these things. And the idea was, a big part of it was to obtain this island as a, a kind of a rescue landing site for the American bombers that were flying from the Marianas to Japan. And and so it would give them an opportunity to land if their aircraft was damaged in some way, give them a place to land. The war correspondent, Ernie Pyle, said that when he talked to the crews in the Marianas, he said the one thing that kept coming up over and over again was their fear of having to ditch their plane in the ocean. And so this kind of was addressing a very real concern of theirs. There's some argument that, well, it wasn't, in the end, capturing Okinawa, I mean, that Iwo Jima wasn't worth all of the lives lost, of course, and that the percentage of planes that needed to use Iwo Jima really didn't merit, you know, the kind of sacrifices that were made. That, of course, was was hindsight. And no one, the other part of this was no one knew how long the war was going to last, right? I mean, if the war had lasted longer, then Iwo Jima might have been more important in that respect. And did the U.S. encounter different Japanese tactics on the island? Yeah, at that point, you know, this is really uh, shown quite well in movie letters from Iwo Jima that the Japanese, I mean, they had turned the island into a, a fort, basically, but they were determined not to sort of squander lives through. They had already adopted this tactic that they weren't going to engage in these uh, bonsai attacks or with trying to stop the Americans at the shoreline where they felt they would be vulnerable to the naval batteries offshore. And so the idea was that they would dig in in the interior of these islands. And once the Americans were ashore, make it as difficult as possible for them to control the entire island. It was a strategy of attrition. And it was one with the complete expectation that the Americans would take the island. I mean, in effect, they were adopting a strategy to lose, but to inflict as many casualties on the enemy as possible. And how did the end of fighting in Europe affect the Pacific War? Well, this is something that General Marshall in particular had worried about and which he saw his fears come to pass. There was a significant letdown on the American home front once Germany was defeated. And there was this feeling that the Japanese were really beaten as well. They were no longer, clearly no longer a threat to the United States in any way. And people were restless, you know. They wanted the boys back home as quickly as possible. And they sort of, you know, they wanted Japan defeated, but they wanted Japan defeated with as few American casualties as possible. That's understandable. But from a military point of view, that would mean that 
that strategy would prolong the war. And the fear that Marshall had was that the Americans would tire even of that limited war and be willing to compromise with the Japanese, which really was the Japanese strategy. I mean, at this point, that's what they were organizing their whole kind of defensive strategy around. It was to sort of attack the morale of the Americans as much as the combat troops. And Okinawa is one of the last battles in the Pacific. What exactly occurred during the battle? Well, this was a kind of larger version of the strategy, defensive strategy that was employed on Iwo Jima. The Japanese really put up minimal resistance when the Americans came ashore on the kind of, it's a south central part of the island on the western side, right? The uh, the Americans were attacking on the western side of the island, the south central portion, and the Japanese allowed them to come ashore, but they had prepared their defensive positions on the southern portion of the island across the entire island, and that they just made it difficult for the Americans to outflank them. And it became, reporters said it looked like World War One all over again, these kind of uh, headlong, you know, pushes. and. It would take days to gain a couple hundred yards, and the weather was just awful. I mean, the rain turned every, you know, the ground to soup. It's hot. Anyway, so Japanese defensive was successful in Okinawa to the extent that it really caused Americans to worry that they were going to face more of the same if when they invaded the home islands. And in the aftermath of Okinawa, was U.S. military and political leadership reluctant to carry out a full-scale invasion of Japan? Yeah, well, they had never really been eager to do it. But yes, they were very much concerned about what they were going to be confronting, particularly because they were going to be using a lot of replacement troops. There was a portion of MacArthur's forces that were going to be demobilized because they had served in the Pacific long enough to achieve the requisite number of points that what was called the adjusted service rating that would allow you to leave the military. And so the Americans would be employing tired, but also green troops in this invasion. And the Americans discovered that the Japanese anticipated where the Americans were going to strike next on the island of Kyushu and the geography of the island, or the topography actually, made it clear where those American forces would come ashore. And so the Japanese were building up their defenses there, and they had moved troops onto the island. That was unknown to the Americans, and they were mobilizing more divisions within the home island to move to Kyushu. And the Americans eventually learned of this through their signals intelligence, and they kept adding more units to the Japanese order of battle during the summer of 1945. And they were very concerned that the Americans wouldn't have just the straight numerical superiority that you would want in a invasion. And that was just for Kyushu, right? Now, the quality of those troops was another question. And it was understood that probably a lot of them were ill-equipped. But the concern was that you would have this sort of replay of Okinawa with Japanese suicide weapons being employed and this defense to the uh, bitter end. So yeah, they were very reluctant. And did this reluctance of like full-scale invasion kind of drive the decision-making process that went into dropping the atomic bombs? 
Well, the way I would put it is, I mean, there was every expectation that the bomb would be used when it was ready. I mean, the way people usually put it, the decision to build the bomb was the decision to use it. You know, I mean, bureaucratically speaking, but also, I mean, that was the whole purpose of having it. But it made, I think, the decision to use the bomb or readiness to use the bomb certainly a lot easier if the alternative was invasion against this very stoutly defended island of Kyushu. And so I think it was a relief to know that there was an option out there that was an alternative to invasion and an alternative to compromise with the Japanese. Uh, So... And to get into some listener questions that were submitted, the first listener question was, why was the Japanese empire so cruel? Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I guess that most empires are. I mean, the purpose is they're exploitive in their very nature, and the imperialist always produces some sort of justification for what they are doing, and the Japanese were no different in that respect. I think we have a sense of what the Japanese were doing as being a lot harsher because they were, in effect, they were losing, right? And they had limited resources. And so they tried to squeeze more and more out of the places they occupied in Southeast Asia. You know, they had come as liberators, they claimed, but they wound up exploiting these areas, creating famine, drafting forced labor, the war in China was particularly gruesome. And I mean, I mentioned to my students that there isn't a lot of questioning of the use of the atomic bomb in China. (laughs) The the Chinese had a pretty good idea why it it should be used. Americans have more second thoughts about it, I am willing to bet, than the Chinese did. And did the, another listener question is, did the United States find it difficult to fight on two fronts, one in Europe and the other in the Pacific? Yeah, I alluded to that a little bit in pointing out that after the beginning of 44, the Americans in the Pacific weren't really able to be reinforced. In fact, my uh, there were two divisions in, on the West Coast that were headed for the Pacific. My advisor was in one of them, but that's when the Battle of the Bulge occurred. And so they were shipped across the country to the East Coast and then put on ships and sent into Northern Europe. So those reinforcements never got to the Pacific. Uh, Shipping was a huge problem and was really strained by having to wage war on a truly global scale. In late 42, the Americans and the British really went at it, hammer and tongs, arguing about the next military operation, the next objective. And when the British kind of kept arguing for campaigns in the Mediterranean, the Americans sort of threatened to basically take their ships and go fight in the Pacific if the British weren't serious about invading Northern Europe. So yeah, it was a huge kind of diplomatic and logistical problem. And another listener question is, why was Japan obsessed with the decisive naval battle despite the evidence that a great victory would not deter the United States? Yeah, that's a a really interesting question. That's the Navy. You know, that's the Japanese Navy. They were raised on the works of Alfred Thayer Mahan, that is a Japanese historian, a late scholar, um, Asada Sadao, who wrote about this. And he said, you know, the Japanese really 
imbibed this Mahanian theory of the great naval conflict and built their whole strategy around it. And at some point in the beginning, it seemed to make sense. The idea that the Americans could wage a successful naval campaign in the Western Pacific seemed to be really just sort of that it seemed that the Americans would be incapable of doing that logistically. It was hard to imagine how that would come about. So in the beginning, there might have been some reasonable expectation of this, but they kind of clung to this. It became this sort of fixed idea in the Japanese admiralty, I think, or at least in a large number of the people expecting it. And of course, naval warfare had changed from when Mahan had been writing. I mean, the aircraft kind of superseded the battleship as the most important military vessel. But that's the best I can do with that one. And another listener question is, do you think the dropping of the atomic bombs was justified? Yeah, I always have trouble with that because in one sense, the historian, I feel my job is to sort of explain the circumstances that were operating when somebody decided to do something or to try and explain what took place. And But no, I mean, I don't think it was justified in the sense that it was an act of war against thousands of civilians. And Americans, remember, had sort of gone to war in World War One because the Germans were killing civilians on the high seas, right? So in that sense, no, I don't, I mean, neither, you know, was the strategic bombing of, uh, or the terror bombing, really, of Japanese cities or even German cities, you know? And late Robert McNamara made that point. He said, well, you know, if we'd lost a war, we would have been tried as war criminals for having done that. So I, you know, I'll leave it to others to argue the morality and ethics of the bomb or to, to make a moral defense of it. I think by Americans' own kind of code, it was unjustified. But I also understand why at that point in the war, where neither side had made much effort to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. It's understandable why Truman would view the atomic bomb as a weapon that could produce the results the Americans wanted, a cost that would be acceptable to the Americans, right? And the final listener question is, was the Allied occupation of Japan different from Germany? If so, how? Well, the big difference was it was, Japan was not divided among the Allies. There was a single commander of the occupation, and that was Douglas MacArthur. The Russians refused to send troops. Uh, Stalin said, I don't want the Red Army to be moved around like a piece of furniture by the Americans. And the British were there, and they had, they groused about having little influence over the decisions that were made from on high by MacArthur. But that proves to be, I think, crucial in the shape of the of post-war Japan. And I think it enabled the American, another important difference, I know more about the occupation of Japan than I do about China, but the Americans worked with a lot of groups in Japan who had before the war been working towards various reforms and they were not in the political leadership and they were not even in the kind of political leadership in the more peaceful era of Japan's history, but they were at the grassroots level and the Americans were able to sort of work with them to implement a lot of liberal reforms in Japan, at least during the first two years of the occupation. And to ask some final concluding questions, the first one is, what, overall, what do you think the legacy of the Pacific War is? Well, the Japanese succeeded in their professed goal of 
contributing to the liberation of the Europeans' colonial empire by driving them out initially and kind of discrediting European colonialism. The People's Republic of China is almost certainly another legacy of the war because the Japanese war in China greatly weakened the nationalist government and created a kind of environment where the Chinese communists could gather strength. The division of Korea, of course, is another important legacy that occurs right after the surrender of Japan. And I mean, it wasn't intended to be permanent, but that's how it turned out, at least permanent in a sense that it's still divided today. And the emergence of a Japan that was more, had a more representative government in which the population had more political and civil rights. It was not a democracy as we might understand it, certainly, but it was a Japan that became one of the industrial leaders, uh, economic leaders of the latter part of the 20th century. And that is a consequence of the war, but of the occupation in, in particular. And my final question is, how do you think the Pacific War should be remembered in the United States as time goes on? Huh. Well, I think it needs to, Americans need to remember how difficult it was, how challenging it was. They had, they need to understand that despite all of the kind of myth making about the greatest generation, that Americans were tiring of the war and that American sort of commitment to war, patience for sacrifice is not inexhaustible. And, you know, we are only human after all. And so, I think that's important. But Americans also need to know the sort of wider scope of the war. In Japan, Japanese leftists refer to it as the 15-year war because they go back to 1931. And, and when China, it's the war against Japanese aggression. And Americans don't remember much about American involvement in China, which is absolutely crucial to understand the full war. And so I think they need to kind of broaden their awareness of what the war involved in the places that where it took the place. That's always a good thing to do. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. I apologize for butchering his name. I'm usually pretty good about it, but some people have challenging last names. But anyways, my sort of takeaway from the interview and reading about the Pacific, I think it's interesting looking at it from a strategic perspective, particularly, you know, how the Japanese Navy didn't innovate at all and didn't adapt to sort of how aircraft carriers were much more important than the big battleships while the U.S. quickly understood how important carriers were. And I think something that's interesting, if you think about December 7th, or 1941, the Japanese focused on trying to destroy the battleships. They thought that the decisive battle would become would come down to sort of these battleships slugging it out at sea. So in some ways for the US Navy, it was a blessing in disguise because their carrier groups were the only available naval forces in early 1942. And from then, the early successes at the Battle of Midway and sort of the draws at Coral Sea and the Solomon Sea, those various battles sort of reinforce this idea that no, battleships are sort of becoming obsolete. The aircraft carrier is becoming the most important. And we see it with different aircraft carrier raids in sort of 1944, 1945, just how quickly aircraft carrier groups became just so experienced and so well-trained and really were able to execute very impressive raids and really sort of led the way 
to the end of the war. And if you look at the Japanese Navy, it was practically the opposite. They sort of obsessed over this decisive naval battle where just one sweeping victory would sort of just end the war, even though, you know, that's not really what could even happen. The U.S. could pretty much easily replace those losses, even if it suffered a catastrophic defeat, even though it was unlikely. And that sort of drove the Japanese Navy thinking pretty much until the end of the war. Even after the Battle of the Philippine Sea and Leyte Gulf, it it all sort of just hinged on this idea that, you know, if we just win one battle, we'll win the war. And that just obviously wasn't the case. And at least from a ground perspective as well, it was fought over many different islands, many different places. You know, one of my goals, hopefully, is to go scuba diving around the Philippines and some of those islands. I think you can actually take trips to like Peleliu, for example, and actually see the island. I mean, it's crazy to think that in places, obviously, a lot of Marines and soldiers describe the island as beautiful places, but sort of odd to think that they were fighting over these tiny places in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And again, the U.S. Navy sort of paved the way for after the war when they had such a big Navy and such a successful Navy that sort of became part of the bedrock of U.S. foreign policy. And the U.S. Navy even today still plays a very important role in protecting world shipping lanes and freedom of navigation voyages, all of that. And that all starts with the Pacific and sort of the creation of the modern U.S. Navy. And it's cool to look at how the U.S. Navy innovated and all of that. But I won't just focus on the U.S. as well. I know they obviously played a big role, but New Zealand, Australia, and the British, and China even, the nationalists, both of them, even before the Civil War, all played important roles in bringing about the end. And obviously, even now, the U.S. and Japan are very close allies, even today. So to see those sort of Again, it's odd to think that 75 years ago, it was such a vicious war was fought in the Pacific Theater. Now we're very close allies. So always trying to relate it back to now. It's interesting to see that sort of revolution in relations. Again, I would like to do more episodes on the Pacific War. You could, again, probably dedicate an entire podcast to the Pacific War. So it's always kind of cool to see. I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode and we'll uh, definitely keep rolling out episodes too. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 